I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and on Naked Oceans this month, we get the lowdown on ocean pollution. There's all sorts of stuff we throw into the seas, and that poses all sorts of problems. We'll find out the truth behind the Pacific garbage patch. The main surprise that we saw was just that there was just so much of this little plastic crumbs out there. And we hear about the first case of a marine species catching a disease from people. And the source of that disease is not at all nice. Humans and human sewage are the source of the pathogen that causes the devastating disease of corals known as white pox. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with me, Helen Scales, and this month we're going from plastic to poo as we investigate the various ways that the oceans get polluted by the activities of mankind. Well, sadly, plastic debris like discarded buckets, garbage bags and fishing nets have become all too common sights on many of the world's beaches. But this small amount of visible coastal rubbish is just the tip of the iceberg of the waste found out in the open ocean that most of us never get to see. There's actually areas of the ocean where there's more plastic than other areas of the ocean, and those are the subtropical gyres. So people might have heard of the Pacific Garbage Patch or the Atlantic Garbage Patch, and those exist because those are natural areas where the currents come together. That was Miriam Goldstein from Scripps Institution of Oceanography, who was involved in a student-led project called CPLEX, the Scripps Environmental Accumulation of Plastic Expedition, to go out and study the reality of this Pacific Garbage Patch. How much plastic was out there? And what impact was it having to wildlife? In terms of the volume of plastic, what the researchers saw shocked them. The main surprise that we saw was just that there was just so much of this little plastic crumbs out there. So when you look at the ocean, it actually just looks totally normal. Um, It's a really nice blue color. Um, It's like pretty. It's water. Um, It's very pleasant to be out there. The sunsets are nice. Um, And it's only when you start looking more closely that you see all the trash. So you'll see objects floating by the boat every couple of minutes, like buckets or pieces of net. And then when you put a very fine meshed net in the water that catches things that are only a third of a millimeter, so that is the width of your uh, fingernail or so, um, then you see these thousands upon millions of very tiny particles. So you can see here in this jar these sort of larger pieces of plastic that are a a couple inches or a couple centimeters. And then mostly they're just unrecognizable crumbs. There's no way of telling what the objects once were. And if you look at the bottom of the jar, sort of underneath the big pieces, you can see how small they get. They're just very, very, very tiny crumbs that almost look like sand. The reason that these are so small is that 
uh, plastic becomes brittle under UV light. Um, as the plasticizers leach out the chemicals that make it flexible, and those are substances actually that you might have heard of, like BPA or phenols. So they leach out, and the plastic becomes brittle, and then it's moved around by the waves and just becomes into these tiny crumbs. So one lost object can make lots and lots and lots of microscopic crumbs of plastic. We found it. We didn't really have to do statistics. I mean, things in the ocean are not everywhere. Like certain, sometimes you find a lot of one thing, you can't find any of the other thing. But the plastic is, is everywhere. And that's what really surprised us. So while it might not be the case of being able to go out and pitch a tent on the Pacific garbage patch, as some people have suggested, plastics are ubiquitous in the oceans. And if they're so ubiquitous, it follows that there must be some interaction with wildlife. But our knowledge of plastic waste impact is fairly limited. The animals that we know about mostly are the ones that are larger and come to shore. We know, for example, that albatrosses eat it and they feed it to their chicks. Um, but you know that because they nest on shore. Um, we know that sea turtles eat it and sometimes die from intestinal blockages. Um, and again, we know that because people notice when sea turtles die and also they come to shore. But with the animals that spend their whole life in the ocean, particularly the small ones, we don't know very much at all. So that was the major aim of the Cplex project. We were trying to figure out how plastic was interacting with the little animals at the bottom of the food chain. So we were collecting water samples for bacteria and for phytoplankton, the microscopic plants, um, net samples for zooplankton, which is the very small and sometimes microscopic animals, big nets or relatively big nets for the small fish. And then we also had observers on board looking at seabirds and cetaceans or marine mammals, um, as well as visually counting trash. And it's that data from the small midwater fish that has shown plastic waste is harming the wildlife out in these gyres. We uh, basically collected these fish using a variety of different types of net trawls and uh, brought them back here and uh, dissected them to see if they had ingested any plastic. And our uh, main finding is that we did find plastic in about 9% of these fish. Rebecca Ash there, who along with colleague Pete Davison was looking at the ingestion of plastics by small fish. Now, finding plastics in the stomachs of 9% of the fish they caught may not sound like a lot, but... First of all, I'd like to say just that the number that should be that we should be getting is zero because plastic is a, a natural uh, food for these organisms. And Rebecca admitted that that 9% figure could be an underestimate as a result of them only being able to sample the plastic present in the stomachs of live caught fish. If the plastic had passed through their systems or indeed caused the fish to die after ingesting it, this wouldn't have included their data. But even with these results, when extrapolated, they provide some worrying numbers. We uh, did some calculations on, given the number of fish that we caught and given the size of the area where you have plastic and how many fish there are in this area, we kept an extrapolation. And what it came out to is that I believe it was like 12,000 to 24,000 tons of plastic ingested by these fish per year. This is made more worrying as an area of concern with ingesting plastics is that they act as a sponge for chemical pollutants like PCBs, which are harmful to wildlife. The worst part about them is that they bioaccumulate, so they get stuck in organisms' fat, and so they build up to very high levels in the predatory animals like the seabirds and the whales and so forth. Um, but it is a matter of concern um, whether eating these plastic particles transfers a huge load of those chemicals into organisms, but it's a people are working on it right now. And a possible next step could be to look at plastic ingestion and bioaccumulation of those pollutants further up the food chain. 
But is there anything the public can do to help? The main thing about this issue is to stop putting trash into the ocean. And that sounds really obvious, but actually we're really bad about that. Um, Here in Southern California, we have a Mediterranean climate, which means that it only rains in the winter. And we throw trash into the canyons all year round. And then as soon as it rains, all that trash from months and months just gushes right out into the ocean and eventually goes, in fact, to the garbage patch, probably. So by disposing of your own trash properly and by helping uh, to dispose of trash that was perhaps not yours, but um, is headed to the ocean and participating in beach cleanups, everyone can help. So to help reduce the plastic waste problem, we should try to help clean up our local beaches and be careful how we dispose of our rubbish. But it's not just plastic waste that we're polluting the ocean with. Another man-made threat has recently been discovered, this time in corals. And this one is particularly hard to stomach because it's a type of bacteria that comes from human faeces. Across the globe, there are known to be around 20 types of disease that affect coral reefs. Coral diseases are a a major stressor affecting coral reefs today. That's Catherine Sutherland from Rollins College in Florida, a microbiologist and ecologist who specialises in coral diseases. Since the mid-1990s, we have seen and described uh, an increasing number of coral diseases. Uh, And they are in combination with other stresses that affect coral reefs. Coral reefs are threatened by warming seawater temperatures and poor water quality and increasing population densities, especially along coastlines and climate change. All of these combine and lead to the decline of coral reefs. Well, one particular disease that's having a devastating impact on corals in the Caribbean is called white pox disease. It only affects Acropora palmata, otherwise known as elkhorn coral, because it grows into large antler-like structures. The disease gets its name from the white blotchy patches left behind when areas of diseased coral tissue die off. And for elkhorn coral, this has spelt very bad news. Elkhorn coral was once the most common coral in the Caribbean, but in 2006 it was listed as a threatened species under the United States Endangered Species Act, and white pox disease played a major role in the listing. And so since the discovery of white pox disease in the mid-1990s, elkhorn coral has declined an average of 90% in the Florida Keys. Uh, And this decimation is occurring in combination with white pox disease and other stressors, and these other stressors include elevated seawater temperatures, poor water quality, and other diseases like white band that have just led to the decimation of elkhorn coral populations Caribbean-wide. Back when white pox first started spreading around the Caribbean, the cause of the disease was a complete mystery. And Catherine Sutherland took on the task of figuring out what was going on. We had no idea what was causing this new emerging coral disease. And so I approached it from a viewpoint of it could be anything. It could be bacteria, it could be a virus, it could be a protist, it could be a fungus. Uh, And so I started my search. And originally, I actually thought it might be a virus because white pox disease only affects one species of coral, uh, as far as we know. And uh, viruses are known to be very host-specific. The focus for disease research in corals is the layer of sticky mucus that the coral polyps secrete on their surfaces. And Catherine started by investigating the bacteria that live in that surface layer. The mucus layer of a coral is the first line of defense of the coral against disease. And the mucus layer is full of microbes, whether or not the coral is healthy or diseased. And when we're looking for a disease pathogen, we collect this mucus layer using non-destructive techniques, using a sterile needleless syringe. And then we plate that mucus onto bacterial medias. And we can look for bacteria. We're going to find a lot because the microbes are present in healthy and diseased corals. And for the case for white pox, I plated all the microbes that 
I found, slated them to pure culture, and then I compared those that were found in only diseased individuals to those that were found in healthy individuals. And I had some potential culprits for pathogens for those that were clustering with the disease samples only. And then the next step was to inoculate healthy Elkhorn coral in a controlled seawater aquaria setting, so you're not affecting the population outside on the reef, uh, and then to see if those pathogens cause disease. And it turned out that the cause of white pox disease was indeed a bacterium. And when we first discovered the pathogen that causes white pox in 2002, we knew that the bacterium that causes the disease, it's called serratia marcescens, we knew that this bacterium was common in terrestrial environments and in human guts and in human sewage. Uh, but at that time, we could only speculate that uh, human sewage might indeed be the source of this pathogen that's killing corals because the pathogen, the bacterium, is actually found in the waste of other animals as well. So the next big question is, where is this disease-causing bacteria coming from? To work that out, Catherine turned to genetic studies. Once I identified the pathogen as serratia marcescens in 2002 and wasn't certain where it was coming from, I did a widespread source survey and uh, looking at multiple potential sources in the Florida Keys. In order to do this, I collected human samples from the Key West Wastewater Treatment Plant as well as waste samples from other animals like key deer and seabirds. And I plated these samples on microbial media that was specific to the coral pathogen, and that's serratia marcescens. And um, while I found serratia marcescens in multiple animals, uh, including key deer and seagulls, my genetic analyses showed that the only the strain from human sewage matched the strain that was found in diseased corals on the reef. And so this gave me a genetic connection between the contamination of nearshore waters with sewage and the white pox disease of corals. And then in order to indeed show that that strain of the pathogen from humans was causing the disease, I inoculated healthy fragments again, like my original studies, um, with this strain that I found in human sewage and in, in diseased Elkhorn coral and to see if it would be pathogenic. And indeed it was. Uh, the strain caused dis disease in Elkhorn coral in five days. So that gave us definitive evidence that humans and human sewage are the source of the pathogen that causes the devastating disease of corals known as white pox. Catherine and her team have traced the source of white pox disease back to human sewage and the bacteria that live in our guts. And this was the first time a disease has been found to jump from humans to a marine invertebrate. This is a, a different disease pathway than what we traditionally hear about wildlife and humans. Usually it's going from wildlife to humans. An example of a wildlife to human disease transmission model is swine flu or bird flu or HIV. But the movement of a disease-causing microbe from a human to a marine invertebrate had never been shown before. And it's not just the bacteria in wastewater that can cause problems for corals, but also the nutrients, largely nitrates, that come with sewage. When we add nutrients to the seawater where we find coral reefs, we have algal blooms and macroalgal growth that outcompete corals for space on the reef and limit their ability to photosynthesize when we have algal growth in the water column. So now the cause of the disease has been identified, steps are being taken to combat the problem at the source. 
We have bad news that humans are the source of the pathogen, but the good news is that we have a solution, and the solution is actually already underway in the Florida Keys, and the solution is advanced wastewater treatment. Historically in the Florida Keys, uh, they've utilized septic systems to contain human waste, and the problem is that septic systems were not designed for areas like the Florida Keys. These waste disposal systems were designed for rural areas with low population densities and areas with soil. Soil filters out any contaminants that leak from a faulty septic system. But the Florida Keys are a high population density area with no soil and there's limestone bedrock instead. And this bedrock is porous and it allows human waste leaking from a faulty septic tank to quickly reach the groundwater in the near shore environment. A decade ago, the city of Key West upgraded their sewage treatment from septic systems to advanced wastewater treatment. And today, the entire Florida Keys is in the process of upgrading local wastewater treatment. And these measures will eliminate a source of the bacterium to the marine environment. Well, white pox disease isn't just a problem in Florida, but across the Caribbean, where there's a widespread lack of good wastewater treatment. And that means that reefs continue to be vulnerable to a human source of the disease. Another question is whether this same bacteria that's common across the world is causing problems for marine organisms beyond the Western Atlantic. Serratia marcescens could be affecting corals elsewhere in the world uh, or other microbes that are associated with human sewage. We've described approximately 20 coral diseases and we only know the causes of approximately five. So there's a lot of unknowns out there. And so serratia marcescens may be affecting other corals and causing other disease signs, signs that look different than white pox and on different coral species. Well, with funding from the National Science Foundation Ecology of Infectious Diseases programme, Catherine is collaborating on a five-year study jointly with Rollins College and the University of Georgia to understand how the pathogen infects corals and what drives outbreaks of the disease on reefs. Could it be factors like climate change and warming seas? One thing we're really interested in is the entire microbial community associated with corals when they're diseased and when they're healthy. So we've been focusing on collecting mucus samples, both for culture of the pathogen, to look for the presence of the pathogen in diseased corals and in healthy corals. Um, But we're also looking at this mucus layer for the whole microbial community, and we're analyzing the whole microbial DNA. And what we want to do is compare the microbial community present on the diseased corals to the microbes present on healthy corals. As I mentioned, the coral mucus layer and the microbes that reside in this mucus layer are the first line of defense of a coral against pathogens. And the microbes present in the layer when the coral is healthy may play a role in defense against the pathogens. So we hypothesize that when the host coral is stressed or, for example, warmer seawater temperatures stress the coral, the microbial community present in the mucus layer may shift or change. And this change in the microbial community may facilitate infection. And one question we're trying to answer is, when the microbial community changes, does this permit the infection by serratia marcescens, or is it the arrival and the proliferation of serratia marcescens in the mucus layer that changes the microbial community? So which comes first, the arrival of the pathogen and then a shift in the microbial community, or the shift in the microbial community that facilitates the pathogen? Well, the mystery of white pox disease may have been solved, but there are still a lot we don't know about coral diseases, and many that still have not yet been fully diagnosed. And so as we approach other coral diseases that are out there affecting the corals and lots of unknowns, we just sort of have to keep an open mind about what may be the cause. It might be bacterium, or it might be a virus, or it might be a fungus. And so you just have to start one at a time and see where it goes. That was Catherine Sutherland from Rollings College in Florida, telling the story of her discovery and diagnosis of white pox disease in the Caribbean elkhorn coral. 
where you can find out more about her work on coral diseases and more on ocean pollution at our web pages. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Well, that's just about all we've got time for on Naked Oceans. But before we go, let's catch up with another marine expert and ask them, if they were a marine critter, which one they'd be and why? Here's our critter of the month. I'm John Copley. I'm a marine biologist at the University of Southampton. And asking a marine biologist to pick a marine critter who they'd like to be is actually a really hard question because there are so many different life forms out there and they have such remarkable different adaptations that it's very hard to choose. But if I have to pick one critter, I think I'd like to be an animal called Cystisoma. And that's a crustacean that lives in the deep sea. And it's a type of animal called an amphipod. And what's unusual about it is it's transparent. Its whole body is see-through. Every tissue and organ is see-through. It's like the invisible man. And I think that's one of the most remarkable adaptations that I've ever come across in, in the deep sea. So it lives down to about 1,000 metres, and that's a, what we call the twilight zone because sunlight actually reaches to about 1,000 metres in the clearest ocean water. But below about 200, 300 metres, it's very, very faint. In fact, the water looks this incredible luminous black. It's the deepest blue you could possibly imagine. Because there's still light, though, getting down to 1,000 metres, it means animals that live in this twilight zone, they still cast shadows. So life down there is basically a perpetual game of hide-and-seek. All the animals are looking for the shadows of their prey above, and they're all desperately trying not to cast shadows below them. And so we get transparent animals. That's one way to avoid casting a shadow, is to make your body completely transparent, to turn into like the invisible man. And that's what Cystisoma does. Um, these animals, they're shrimp-like animals. They're about four inches long. I've held one in my hand when I was in the Gulf of Mexico. They have enormous, a pair of enormous eyes. You know, most of their head, which is about a third of their body, is, is just a pair of eyes that are looking upwards, incredibly sensitive eyes, looking for the shadow of any of their prey above. And then to make sure they don't cast any shadow, they're completely see-through. I mean, that's just remarkable. Think about all of your body's organs. What would be required biologically to make all of those see-through and transparent? It's a phenomenal creature. Well, that was John Copley from the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton, introducing a weird crustacean that inhabits the twilight zone in the deep sea and that you can see right through. We can find lots more marine creatures at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. That's it for this month on Naked Oceans. Many thanks to Miriam Goldstein, Rebecca Ash, Catherine Sutherland and John Copley. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you, so keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Naked Oceans or send us an email. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. You'll find more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.